Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This episode is sponsored by Try Vegan, a vegan meal home delivery service that is nutritious and delicious and makes your life easier. Based out of New Jersey, they deliver throughout the Northeast. Check out more details on their website, tryveganmealprep.com. And you can get 25% off your first order with the promo code LITYOGA. So go vegan. Welcome to Friday with Friends. Today, I have a friend, Ted Price, and he is a neuroscientist. Now, if you know me well, you know I am so into neuroscience, the brain, and science. I'm just fascinated with it. So when I learned about Ted a few weeks ago, I just went down the rabbit hole of learning all about the work he's done, this product that he's created called Ted's Brain Cream um, pain cream. I always say brain cream because it is from the brain. And um, he's just super cool as well. We had such a fun time talking today. I can't wait for you to listen. I mean, I had a whole list of notes, which I sometimes do just in preparation. And I didn't even look at them because we just chatted about his life, how he became a neuroscientist, how injuries like an old football injury and, and a spinal injury led to going down this pathway of the brain, neuroscience and pain. And this is still a relatively new area, but he and his colleagues are focused on understanding pain better and how it can be treated with a holistic approach. And the products he creates help that. He's also offering all of you listeners a special 15% coupon code, REDEFY, which I love, yoga, and it's actually R-E-D-E-F-Y-O-G-A hyphen 15. And you can use that. That'll also be in the show notes, but I would really try his cream out. I can't say enough about it. Listen to him first, and I think you will be even further convinced. Welcome, Ted. So glad to have you on today on my special Friday with Friends, meeting inspirational people like yourself. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
I'm especially kind of awestruck because um, you're a neuroscientist, which is something that, uh, you know, I think you could just drop that at a cocktail party and a lot of people immediately, I mean, you just get immediate kudos. Uh, I, do, I do that all the time. I was going to yeah. say, have you found that? <laughs> <laughs> you walk up in a bar and you're like, excuse me, I'll take a beer. I'm a neuroscientist. And it's like, <laughs> there's something about it. I don't know what it is. I mean, I went to um, undergrad wanting to be a neurosurgeon. And I lasted about a week. And I thought, like, I, it wasn't the neuro part. It was the medicine part. So I've always been fascinated with the brain. What got you into, like, wanting to know more about the brain and, and specifically being a neuroscientist, which is not an easy path? Yeah, um, it was kind of an accident, actually. So when, when I was an undergraduate student, I was a physics major. And I had always kind of wanted to be an astrophysicist. So That also um, sounds really smart. Yeah. Well, <laughs> either one. Uh, either one will work. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it turned out that I probably am not smart enough to be an astrophysicist, but my, uh, so I, I had a really great advisor at the time who said, you know, why don't you think about neuroscience? And I actually took a, a lab neuroscience class. That was the first neuroscience exposure that I had. And I absolutely loved it. And I switched my major basically immediately and I never looked back. So I ended up doing a bachelor's degree in neuroscience and I did a PhD in neuroscience and pharmacology, postdoc in uh, neuroscience with a focus on pain. And I've been in the pain and neuroscience area for my entire uh, scientific career. How did you get interested in pain in particular? Well, that, that was another accident. So I, I, I went to graduate school with the uh, full intention of studying depression and how uh, the early antidepressants that were uh, clinically available in the late 90s, early 2000s, how they worked. And I did, I did that for a little while, actually. Um, but then I uh, did what's called a lab rotation in another lab that was studying cannabinoids, some products or compounds from the marijuana plant, and also synthetic cannabinoids and endogenous cannabinoids, the kind that are actually made in our own brains. And I thought that that was really fascinating. And it, at the time, it was a, a rapidly growing area of neuroscience. Lots of major discoveries were being made. And the pain was kind of like a, a follow-on to it. That lab just happened to also be doing pain. So that's how I got into the pain field was through this introduction to cannabinoids. But then I, I realized that pain is, is a really interesting scientific problem and also a huge medical issue. And I, I didn't really realize this when I was a... A young person, and um, and I, but I know it well now. And um, I decided that this was a really great area to be in, and I've stayed in pain uh, since what 1999 uh, was when I started in that lab. So more than 20 years now. Well, in a way, that's that is linked, I'm sure, to depression because chronic pain inevitably. Um, from as a physical therapist, I see it. I've seen it so many times over the years, like how it does change the way that you feel. Literally, I'm sure the neurotransmitter change, but can we dive into that a little bit? Like maybe start for basics, like pretend these are kindergartners that are, that are, that are listening. Like how do you explain pain? Like we understand something hurts, but what is causing pain and how is it regulated and dictated by the, the brain itself? Yeah, sure. So pain, really starts in the in the periphery so there usually is a, a source somewhere in your body for pain in in many cases it starts with an acute injury 
as pain becomes chronic, it may not be driven by the injury anymore, but it's still driven usually by the peripheral nervous system. So your entire body is innervated by neurons uh, that are in your peripheral nervous system. Most of those neurons are uh, along your spine, sitting in between the little bumps on the outside of your vertebrae, that's called the dorsal root ganglion. And there, there are these specialized neurons called nociceptors that are uh, uh, tuned to sense damaging or potentially damaging stimuli. So when those neurons become activated, um, they send a signal into your spinal cord that then goes on up to your brain. <clears throat> and the perception of pain doesn't originate in the, in the periphery necessarily. You really need the, the cortex to become activated because pain is not just a sensory experience. It's a sensory and emotional experience. So, and that's, I think, one of the reasons it's so distressing to us is that it's not like something is just touching us. It's something is attacking us and we have to get away from it, you know? So it, it really is kind of a, the whole system is set up to make alarm bells go off all over your brain. And that's another really interesting thing that distinguishes the pain system from like touch or sight or things like that. You know, the, those go to very specific places in your brain. If, you know, the sensation rises to an extraordinarily high level, it might get distributed in other parts of your brain, but the pain system is distributed all over your, all over your brain to begin with. It, it goes into your amygdala, which is kind of the, the fight or flight part of your brain, it goes in your hippocampus, which is the working memory part of your brain. It goes into the anterior cingulate cortex, which is the kind of uh, emotional affective part of your brain. And it also goes into the sensory part of your brain. So it distributes everywhere and has a huge impact uh, when it does. Mm. God, there's so many avenues I could go. But the first one that was getting to me is, so we, we experience pain because it obviously served a purpose. You know, it, it served a warning. And that warning can be like a very acute, you know, hand on a stove. Oh my God, take it off. And then what happens after that original kind of insult or injury or protective mechanism that was in place, that pain, say, on my burnt hand, what is continuing to send the message to or, you know, from the peripheral to the, the, the cortex? Or where is it going? And then how does one like short circuit that? Or can yeah. you? Great questions. Um, so I think First of all, uh, what a lot of people don't recognize is that uh, your peripheral nervous system is extraordinarily plastic, just like your brain. So your, your brain can, can change depending on your experience, can you know the books you're reading, all the things that we do to try to enrich ourselves. Injury, sadly, can um, enrich <laughs> our peripheral nervous system and things in ways that we don't want it to. So uh, when you have an injury, your peripheral nervous system can, be, can become what we call sensitized. And that basically means it starts responding to stimuli that it didn't respond to before. And some of those things are just your normal daily body activity. So for instance, neurons can become so sensitized to temperature that they respond to just your normal core body temperature. And that can generate a signal, a pain signal. Um, they can become so sensitized that 
they can respond to mechanical stimuli that they don't they didn't respond to before or they can become so sensitized that they respond to just your normal everyday immune system and that that happens in people oftentimes that have autoimmune diseases is that the uh, immune system starts interacting with the nervous system in such a way that it's causing these signals to generate so i think that what we know now from the collective work of of hundreds of labs around the world over the last two decades is that injuries, acute injuries can really change the peripheral nervous system and particularly these, these nociceptor cells quite profoundly. And those cells don't readily go back to being normal. And so we, we need to have some way to try to push them back to the state they were in before we had the injury in some cases. Now, obviously many types of injuries the pain resolves. We've all had injuries that, you know, that we don't still have pain from, but for some reason, certain types of injuries or injuries that happen in certain times of your lives, or when your immune system is in a certain state. Um, I think like what we're seeing with long haul COVID is one of these kind of examples. Um, these can uh, create the right kind of situation for your nociceptors to become sensitized and that sensitization to fail to resolve. Hmm. So that oversensitization, if um, I'm describing it accurately, is almost like you take the volume and you turn it up and instead of like dialing it back down, it just stays at that. So, right. so with that, what are the other sequelae from that? The, like in terms of your nervous system, your stress responses. And in that, um, what I'm also really curious about in chronic pain, so it's a lot of questions like, the emotional center of the brain, how we attach, I don't want to say a story because it's not like you're telling a story, but it is what you repeatedly tell yourself and associate, you know, my, I have a bad shoulder every time I do that. And, and it's this, you're almost preemptively not giving your shoulder a break also with your thought patterns. Can you talk a little bit about like how that volume stays up and uh, the other parts of the brain that it affects? Yeah, well, so I think that that um, is a really important aspect of chronic pain. As I talked about before, the pain system does distribute over many parts of your brain, and many parts of those brains are very important for your emotional uh, state, also for generation of fear reactions, things like that. And when that volume is turned up all the time, you know, you're generating that alarm signal all the time, and that causes plasticity in your brain as well. So that can mean that you would have a fear of certain types of movements that you know might cause you pain, even if they're not necessarily causing you pain anymore. Lots of people that have chronic pain have comorbidities of anxiety and depression. I think that's because this, this alarm system is going off all the time and it does literally change your brain. It's not like you're imagining that something else is, is there. And these issues can be very hard to reset if you don't take care of the underlying problem. And sadly, in many cases, we don't have a really straightforward way to help take care of the underlying problem. I mean, I think we're learning more about how to potentially do it. One of the reasons I was excited to talk to you today is because I do totally think that movement is a, is a good way to do it. But, you know, I think what we need is holistic approaches where people can take multiple things together mm -hmm. and come up with really solid plans to help them on an individual basis. Would you say it's accurate 
in a, in a, in a healthy way that you could actually have the plasticity working more for you. If you, if people with chronic pain, say somebody has a low back and they're just like, every time I do this, it hurts. I'm not going to do it anymore. And like you said, that has changed actually the experience in the brain. The plasticity is kind of heightened to those movements, even though they're not necessarily causing the pain. Can you separate and almost be like, this is a person in my apartment here who's telling me information that isn't actually accurate. And I'm going to just like put on my earmuffs a little bit and not totally listen. Is that, is there, is there any, any way to do that so that you actually like, again, rewire movement, but also through the awareness that this is a separate kind of communication that is not actually accurate, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I I think that that is totally possible. So my background is cellular neuroscience Mm -hmm. and not really psychology or psychophysics. But when when I was a postdoc at McGill University in Montreal, and at the time I was there, it was the biggest pain research center in the world. That had nothing to do with me being there, but I I just got lucky. And there was a person in the psychology department. He's still there, actually. His name is Mick Sullivan. And he did these amazing experiments with people with low back pain who had the same kind of issue. They were afraid to move because of the possibility that they would throw out their back, so to speak. And they did these amazing experiments where they they put people in these situations where they had these heavy buckets in front of them and, and asked them to lift them. They didn't actually ask them to lift them, but they were like talking about their thought process of what they went through before they would lift them, right? And the farther away they were from them and they couldn't move their feet, you know, obviously the more strain you put on their back. And, you know, from those studies, which uh, I won't go into a ton of detail about, but basically what they figured out was that people are extraordinarily afraid of movement that could potentially cause them pain and, and for really good reason, but that they could train people to learn how to do small things that would allow them to be able to do the movements that would cause them more fear. And if they did that over time, they were actually, they didn't show like brain imaging evidence that they were rewiring their brain, but their responses were changing. So suggest that they actually were rewiring their brain. So I've had, I've had that kind of anecdotal evidence and some of it is just a natural, just part of what I've, want people to realize is that we're very sturdy, you know, the homo sapiens, we are like sturdy and that yes, we have injury and, and pain is a huge deterrent, but sometimes just by saying to somebody, you're going to be okay. And, mm-hmm. and we're going to work in these small ranges. And yeah, I, I call it coming in the side door. So it's not going into the pathways that they're so fiercely associated with being fear producing, pain producing, all that, but kind of going in and then having them be able to, again, calm the nervous system down enough to realize like, oh, this is possible. Sometimes that's a huge leap. And again, that's more of the emotional stuff. I I, I totally agree. Also, when I was a postdoc, I had a severe spinal cord injury, actually. Oh, wow. uh, Yeah. So I I blew out my spine. Uh, I lost use of my left leg for some period of time until I had surgery, but the the pain was the most unimaginable pain. My my leg felt like it was on fire and in a vice all the time for about a month. It was, it was truly awful. And I'm super lucky that I recovered. But when I went through the period afterwards of of rehabilitation, because I did, I I was also lucky that I regained motor uh, function in my leg. 
but you know, it, it was a long road and I went through that with the physical therapy and also some pharmacological help. <laughs> and, right. And that's what we want to say. There's many avenues. Like yeah. you can't just, right. Uh, yeah. But it was, a, it was an amazing process and it, it really did require exactly what you're just talking about. So th that was also quite something else, you know, having the pain background that I, that I already had and then becoming a patient myself, seeing how all this could work together on, you know, my own individual basis was, well, uh, it gives you such a level of, you know, real empathy that, that is, I think inherently important, um, when you are dealing with people, especially in chronic pain, because yeah. people at a certain point, a lot of times, even doctors don't, don't really believe them af it, after a while. So you can really say like, I know I've been there. It, it was an amazing motivator to do more, to take the science that we are creating on a daily basis and turn it into something that can help people. So getting into like your products, I mean, you became a neuroscientist. What were you actually, what were you doing? Is it all like research or was there always an idea that you were going to develop something? It almost sounds like it was a tiny bit haphazard. You were studying pain, but were you always kind of on this path for research with the idea that you would produce some kind of product that would help? Not, not, not really, honestly. I mean, the research world and how you develop products in the pre-financial collapse of 2008 world was a lot different than it is now. So, you know, I always imagined we would do what I had seen all the people, my mentors around me do. And that was, you know, it would work with colleagues in pharma industry, hand over ideas to them, and they would develop them. And in the financial collapse of 2008, the research and development arms of almost all the pharma companies were laid off. And suddenly that part of the world didn't exist anymore. And I, I guess we kind of decided, Hey, you know, if we're going to do this, we, we're just going to have to do it ourselves. It took many years to figure out how on earth that could actually happen. Cause I know nothing about business. I, I do now a little bit, but you know, but back then I, I literally knew nothing. Well, we started by talking to people in the technology transfer office at University of Arizona, which is where I was at the time, learned as much as we could there. And the most important thing to happen was that we moved to Dallas. So as much as I like Tucson, Arizona, it's not exactly a startup business hub. <laughs> and uh, it's almost entirely, almost retirees. Wasn't the best place to be to do that kind of thing. And uh, we moved to Dallas, ETD, uh, which is the university that I'm at right now, University of Texas at Dallas, set us up with some entrepreneurial-minded folks within the university. And that started a bunch of discussions that led have, have now led to five companies that we've spun out of our lab. So go neuroscience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, my, my, my viewpoint now is that, you know, chronic pain is, a, is an extraordinarily diverse disease that we often look at as a single entity, but it's definitely not. And we need lots of solutions and there's many different types of pain that need to be treated. And we're trying to do everything we can to take the discoveries we make and try to push them towards the clinic, because if we don't do that, they won't ever have a shot to help people. That's amazing. And because it's really uncovering. And like you said, there are many different forms and I think it does get under this umbrella. I had actually a a woman, a friend of mine wrote me on Instagram and she said, I'm so grateful that you, you know, posted about this product. I looked into it and I'm especially grateful that they put on there, this might not be appropriate for, and I can't remember the name of her chronic disease. 
but it's like, you know, abbreviation, I mean, or acronym, A-N-D-S or something. And maybe CRPS. Yes, yeah, CRPS. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. she just said there's, she's bought so many things that have exacerbated it. And she just thought that that level of transparency and expertise at acknowledging this is different and this could not work, for, this this might not work for you. And she, anyway, so I wanted to pass that on because I thought like that's that's so telling, right? This is not just selling a product to anyone. Like you said, snake oil, this is probably going to work for so many people and we're going to talk about it, but that you're also, maybe you're doing research on that particular type of chronic pain which this pro- your product wouldn't right now necessarily help. Yes, it's it's un- undoubtedly true, and we feel like as scientists that if we don't, if we're not transparent with people about what we know, we're not being true to ourselves, and um, that makes it hard to live with yourself. I can yeah. So let's talk about your wonderful product because, first of all, full disclosure, I'm usually skeptical just because I think everybody should be right. It doesn't mean negative. It just means like, okay, well, let me, let me delve in. But I, even before I received your product, I, I immediately was sold because you're a neuroscientist, but much more about the, the process you, you took in developing it. And can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's so fascinating that again, it almost felt like you were, you know, you're like a mad scientist, like, wait, this is really good for aging. Let's just put it on my body. <laughs> um, <laughs> can you talk a little bit about how you came up with this yeah. decision? Yeah. Yeah, sure. I, I can. Um, so we, as I mentioned before, I'm, I'm a cellular neuroscientist and, you know, we were working on the really nitty gritty molecular details of how nociceptors become sensitized. And we had this idea that this particular signaling pathway called AMP kinase would be a a nice one to try to activate to decrease nociceptor uh, sensitization, which I think is the key driver of of many types of uh, localized chronic pain disorders. And as we were doing that, we had to make decisions about what kind of molecules we were going to work with to try to activate this pathway because, you know, we're, I'm a pharmacologist and, and that's typically how we think about doing things. And we knew that we had the option for this to work with resveratrol, which is a natural product that is, is safe. It's typically sold as an anti-aging, as, as you mentioned, typically get given uh, orally and it has very little value there because it doesn't really get out of your gut if you swallow it, unless you swallow about a gram of it, which you can do, but that's about a whole, a bot, a whole bottle, what you buy <laughs> at any given time. But it, it does penetrate skin pretty well. And so uh, we, we, we did experiments and preclinical models in, in our laboratory to demonstrate that it, it could work on cells. Um, we do do animal work. We did studies in mice, demonstrated that it can work in mice. and about the time that we were first doing the studies in mice, I was really struggling with Achilles tendonitis. I play basketball a lot and my Achilles has bothered me for uh, a long time. So actually it's been since I had the spinal cord injury. So, you know, I, I did lose a lot of muscles in my leg because of the motor injury. And I've, I've struggled with tendonitis in my knee and my Achilles. And it was just driving me totally bonkers. And I couldn't play. And I was like, you know what? This is crazy. I, I have this resveratrol. I know it's safe. I worked with a friend of mine in the pharmacy school at University of Arizona, and I just made a concoction and I started using it on myself. And, and you know, within within a, about a day, actually, I was like, "Oh my God, this is amazing!" 
And nobody, nobody else believed me. Nobody else was willing to put it on. But I, I kept, I kept telling people, you know, this is really good stuff. We should turn this into a topical. And we, we started to investigate whether we could actually make a product. And you know, it, it took, it took a long time. Uh, we moved from Arizona to Dallas, and it was, it was still years before it actually happened. But that is how it started. And you know, the first person that it was ever used on was me. That's a good guinea pig. And, and I applied it to myself. Yeah. And I, I actually made it for myself, entirely for myself for years because it was so good. And, you know, I, I have these constant injuries from playing basketball and all the other injuries I've had throughout my life. And, you know, it, it, I, I think it's like magic and I'm glad other people can use it now. That's incredible. Can you explain how it works? Like, what is it that it's doing yeah. that is different than, say, the old bin gay people would like put on the locker room. Yeah. Okay. So, so you know, we, we have one of the products that's in bin gay in our product, right? So uh, we, we do have methyl the menthol slate yeah. and mm-hmm. yeah, in the uh, original cream. And uh, we have some different products in the other ones. The thing they all have in common is resveratrol. Our professional strength has more resveratrol than the other ones, but uh, those are just standard anti-inflammatories. They, they block an enzyme called cyclooxygenase that creates prostaglandins, which is a very common inflammatory mediator. Advil does basically the same thing. Um, you can get a higher concentration locally if you put it on your skin rather than swallowing it. You also don't get the GI side stuff, effects. Yeah. yeah. But that doesn't affect the nociceptors themselves. It affects the prostaglandin that then acts on the nociceptors. So the work that we've done in our lab shows that cytokines and other things that come from your immune cells act on nociceptors and activate the signaling pathway to sensitize them that can be blocked if you activate AMP kinase. So it's a fairly complicated, you know, signaling thing um, that there's not any real need to go into much detail on other than to say that the difference is that the resveratrol part of it acts directly on the nociceptors to inhibit their sensitivity, whereas the standard anti-inflammatories are acting on other cells. It's not a direct action on the nociceptors. And I, I think actually the combo of using them both it is a, a really nice way to go for a lot of people. And, you know, you can get that in both our standard cream and the roll, the roll on gel. So if I were to attempt to summarize that, would, would you say that the difference would be one that typical pain relief cream kind of masks the pain by creating a different sensation that the brain focuses on versus this is actually targeting those overstimulated pain areas and I don't know if it's like reform, like rewiring it or just turning that volume down. Like it's actually going into the brain itself versus more peripheral analgesic. Yeah. So, so all of the topicals that are on the market right now basically have three standard ingredients in them. Well, one is a salicylate, which we, we have in our product that really is an anti-inflammatory it does turn down the volume to some extent. Another one is menthol, which we don't have any menthol containing products. That one is a counter irritant, as we say. So it creates another sensation, distracts you from pain. That's what things like icy hot, or not icy hot, biofreeze have in it. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then icy hot has capsaicin. 
and capsaicin is you know creates a heating sensation and it's the same type of thing to, to counter irritant the the capsaicin actually if you put too much of it on can you know really create a burning sensation so many people don't like that um and I, I especially don't like that i'm extraordinarily sensitive to that in the places where i've had nerve injury so the uh, resveratrol though you know it, it really acts directly on the nociceptors to turn down the volume so while the salicylate turns down the volume a little bit we really want to have that direct action on the nociceptor to turn that volume down as much as possible so that's what we're going for okay and so to use it and have the most benefit for the nociceptor to have more of a kind of lack of a better word permanent shift Yep. What do you suggest in terms of now? So I was looking up, for example, this is amazing for so many remedies that, you know, I work with plantar fasciitis. It seems like all tendonitis, muscle strained. How, how, so if, if someone's having like, let's say more of an acute injury, how often should they use it? I mean, my recommendation, if you have an acute injury is to use it consistently. So think of it differently than using a biofreeze or something like that. Mm -hmm. So put it on it probably will not start working immediately. It's not going to give you immediate pain relief, but hopefully within, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes. And then even if it stops hurting, put it on again, six to eight hours later, and, you know, use it two to three times a day for a couple of days. And the reason that I say to do that is because hopefully the pain just won't come back. If you, if you have a persistent pain problem, I would say, you know, use it for five to seven days and maybe it'll help it a lot and you'll feel like you don't need to use it anymore. Maybe you can do that five to seven day treatment, you know, every other week or something like that. I, I don't think you need to be using it necessarily every single day, two to three times a day. But I do think consistent use for at least a couple of days when you use it is going to give you a much better impact than if, if you don't do that. Okay. So besides the subjective, I feel better, my pain is now whatever out of ever. Uh, is there any way to actually, for chronic pain people, to actually look at the brain and see, because it sounds like this is happening in um, these pathways. I don't know, like if you, is there a blood work or enzymes that you look at, or is it just a subjective, I feel better and I haven't felt this good in a while? Well, I'm, okay, so th th this is kind of a difference between an individual versus a population mm -hmm. type thing. And what and where research is going to try to to do this in a more quantifiable way. So, I think for any individual, what what matters is how how you feel and if it's helping you to to do what you'd like to be able to do. But as researchers and for clinical trials and things like that, we obviously would like to have some kind of way to look across populations and and have a standardized measure of analgesia. Or, or pain relief, or even improved outcome, you know, mm -hmm. that's not related to pain, but maybe related to, to comorbidities. And for that, there's, there are many studies going on using what's called functional MRI, which is a technique that lo looks at activity in the brain to try to quantify connectivity between different brain regions to have some way to say, hey, this person's pain went from X to Y, and you could standardize that across a, a bigger group of patients to give us better, more accurate outcomes in clinical trials. That's now, wild. I'm just curious, like if somebody was doing movement 
and they're doing this functional MRI, can you locate like the amygdala center and that all of a sudden it has a lot more activity and then say after your cream used for a while, it would not, would that, is that something you can see on an MRI? So unfortunately, the, the, it's not really possible to do in the way that you described for a couple of reasons. The primary one is that these MRI machines are quite big and you can't really do movement in them. I mean, you can do movement when you're laying down in the machine, but still you're pretty restricted. Mm. It's also really costly. Yeah. So I, I, I don't, I don't think sadly. Why are the MRIs so expensive? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I mean, if we learn something really important from these kind of studies that are going on right now, you could potentially use something that you could use in a more routine basis, like uh, EEG that just requires, you know, wearing one of these kind of funny looking helmets that have some electrodes that are on the surface of your scalp. And there we could potentially learn a lot and correlate it back to what we've learned from the MRI uh, studies. And I know people are, are actively working on things like this. It's not really my research focus area, but it's, it's a super interesting idea. I guess the, the, the philosophical problem I have with it is that at the end of the day, I do believe that we should, we should believe what patients and individuals say about their pain and not try to quantify it in some other way, because I, I really don't think that people make up pain. No, I, 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 Nobody I, wants to experience pain. No. And I, I agree. That was like, as a physical therapist, we were supposed to, for insurance companies, use the pain scale. And I was like, yeah. this is so stupid. A, I really believe that even asking them their level of pain is like putting that in their head, right? It's like putting the awareness and one person's five is going to be different from another. I'm much more interested in like, how is this affecting you? You know, how is it making you feel versus a number, which is, you know, again, I, I, I think pretty hard. Yeah. Uh, doesn't I, tell us the whole picture at all. I, I, I totally agree with you. And, you know, in, in my continuing issues with pain stuff, it, it's never the pain actually that is what really gets me is if it's if I don't feel functional enough to play with my kids or something like that, or, you know, back in the day when I couldn't play basketball. I agree. It, that's what, that's what I think most people want, right? Is that they, they want to be able to, to garden or to, to do what they want to do. Yeah. I mean, I think that's everybody's dream is to just, and, and you don't know it until unfortunately it's not there. Right. And I always yeah. say like, don't wait for that moment. Like sometimes you can't help it, but like, we don't appreciate our health until it's not what we want it to be. And then it's, then we see how it impacts all the different areas of our lives. I yeah. have a, I have a question. So I'm imagining you in the lab. Did you have like a back to the future, holy or eureka or like moment, like when this worked, was that just crazy, amazing, exciting? I mean, the, the, it, yes, it, it is. And that is the thing about this profession that I think is just totally incredible. In, in science, there are moments in time where you know something that nobody else in the world knows. And it's the most exhilarating feeling. Hmm. I, I, I don't know if there's anything like it. I, I can't imagine, especially really, when you know that this is something that it is really ultimately and not, this is not an overstatement, going to change people's lives. It's like, what, uh, I mean, it's like uncovering, yeah, like an ancient tomb and finding jewels and being like, ah, this is here. It's here. It's here. I've it got is, it. It is pretty incredible. Yeah. All right. So 
Tell us, okay, I'm curious, how does one get resveratrol? Resveratrol? Yes, resveratrol. How do you pronounce it? Resveratrol. Resveratrol. Okay. So I always say the red wine compound. Don't get it from red wine. Yeah. Yeah. Don't do it there. Uh, How do you acquire this? Well, so, I mean, it it comes, it it does come from grapes, which is why it's in red wine, but it's in very low concentration in red wine. But I'm like, for your Um, product, how do you get it? We get it. We get it from grape skins. You get it from grape skins. So, okay. Yeah, but but we we may change source from time to time depending on cost. Uh, you can also get it from a plant called Japanese knotweed. So the, those are the two primary places from which you get resveratrol. The, the, there's two forms of re- resveratrol. There's cis and trans resveratrol, which are uh, chemical ways of of saying you know very slight differences between the molecules, but the, only the trans version is biologically active. So that's, that's important. Have to make sure you get the right stuff. Oh, that's good to know too, right? Yeah. It's very, very because good somebody could yeah. label it. A, yeah. 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 If you ever see a product that's like hundred percent cis resveratrol, don't buy that. Don't buy that. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I mean, the, those are the two primary sources and, uh, Japanese knotweed grows in lots of places, presumably originally in Japan, but it's found many places. And then, yeah, you, you can extract it from, from, uh, grape skin mm. and that's where we buy it. That's cool. So on yeah. that note, since you're, yeah, that you were new to business because immediately when I saw your product, I was like, and I'm not saying this again, you're not paying me anything. Like it's very reasonably priced. Very. How do you come up with that? I mean, or maybe you probably didn't, maybe you did, but I'm sure you have business people. Yeah. Yeah. I figured I was like, I didn't want to take that away from you if it was possible, Ted, but I had a feeling somebody else came in because it's very reasonably priced. So when you started, like you have a product, you've developed it. Just briefly tell us about the next stage. Like how does one get a product that has gone through all the clinical trials and is ready to become, you know, yeah. kind of on the economic chain. How, how do you, what's the process? Well, so, so we, we didn't go through any clinical trials. So we, we have our, you our did preclinical, pre-clinical. Yeah. Okay. Preclinical data. Yeah. And, uh, resveratrol is what's called generally regarded as safe. So we, we can put it in the product. We can't make direct claims about clinical benefit, but we can tell you about the science that we've done, which is what we try to be very careful to do. I mean, we, we worked with a, a group uh, that we brought together that those people, especially David Hitt, who's our, our CEO, were all still part of the team or on the board of directors and uh, everybody played their own role and their own specialty. The, the emphasis that I tried to make was that we need to try to make an affordable product so that anybody that wants to use it can use it. I, I mean, the, the point of this is not to make a luxury product. Uh, I really so I, appreciate I that. I hope, it is so for I everybody listening. That. Yeah. I, I totally do because I really was like, this is really cheap. I mean, it, it is and, and for what it does, and for the possibility for someone who probably has spent thousands of dollars, if not more, on different ways to make themselves feel better. And you know, again, I'm it's those are apples and orange. I'm not saying that wasn't yeah. necessarily the path they needed to take at that point, but. In, you know, if you take all of that into account, it's extremely reasonable. And um, I was just curious about like how you came up with that. So I'm glad you really had that. Yeah, because you have another full time job. So (laughs) that always helps (laughs) when you're doing other stuff. Well, and how long has it been around? And where, what are your goals? Where do you guys want to take this? 
So we we got the product on the market. I guess it was 2017. Really took off in 2018 when we had an NPR story. I saw that. The, yeah, <laughs> that's always the case. You're like, everything was fine, and then all of a sudden you get you know you did this story and you got uh, for everybody's yeah. listening. He got they got you know tons of orders and they weren't able to keep up with the orders, which is like a good problem to have and yet not for customer uh, satisfaction. So yeah, that was quite the experience. I bet your stress levels went up. <laughs> we eventually caught up. Well, yeah. you know, it was a good problem to have. Yeah, again, it's a great problem uh, to so, have. Yeah. yeah and, and, you know, people were really happy when they finally got the product. People were patient with us. I mean, they understood that we were a, a small startup company and we, we, we did our best and we, we were transparent with people. I, I think, you know, that helped our, our ethos. You know, we, we, we tried to be as transparent as we can with people from the very start. Where would we like to go? I mean, I, I I would like to be on the shelves in all of the major pharmacies, et cetera, uh, one day. It t- takes a lot of capital to be able to do that. We've we've tried to maintain control of, of the company to stay true to what we have generated. I think probably the best road forward to us, for us right now, is to get into more uh, physical therapy offices, uh, doctor's offices, private physician offices, that kind of thing. And that happens through word of mouth, uh, mostly, I, I think. I, I agree. Also, mm-hmm. Yeah. So that that's the approach that we're taking. And, you know, we, we've grown a lot <laughs> since we started and we, we continue to do well. And uh, well, it I'd is deserve it. It is. It is deserve it. I, um, I will tell you, I am you know, like I was saying, I, I, I have some skepticism, healthy skepticism about any product. And I just, I, even before I tried it, I just, I was already sold. Also being on NPR, I'm like, okay, you know, cause I'm an NPR fan. I'm like, okay, they got on NPR. I'm sold. But it just, there's all the groundwork was laid into it. And then you add the personal story. It's um, yeah. You couldn't have written it more perfect, Ted. <laughs> Thank you. And I love that your wife was the one that said, call it Ted's brain cream or uh, brain pain cream instead of like calling it some fancier name. And I thought, wow, that's, yeah, that's great. Yeah. So you're going to become the new like Toms of Maine for, for, for pain, for pain (laughs) management. I'm sure of it. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day. Thank you for having me. Um, This was like, literally, I, I, I was so excited to talk about your product and just talk to you in general because um, I neuroscience is I just love the field and I I, I don't think I've actually talked to a neuroscientist in person so you might yeah you're my first and everyone you can go to the show notes and there is a special discount there for Ted's wonderful products make sure you pick it up it is incredible I can't say enough about it and thank you so much Ted for all the work you're doing really appreciate it thank you so much thanks for having me thank you and for everybody listening as always I'm pulling for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.